This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. think this is just a bunch of piping and you know you can send your plumber out there to do this, this kind of stuff well plumbing is a noble profession i mean steam is a whole different animal and you got to understand some of the dynamics that are involved in uh, in steam before you do any sizing before you do any any piping this week on the show tips for improving your process steam system from a longtime master brewers district officer contributor and course lecture. Hi, my name is Steve Huffman. I'm with Meet O'Brien Incorporated in St. Louis, Missouri. Talk about sizing steam boilers. What are some things that might get overlooked? Well, certainly the, what the feed water temperature is at the beginning, uh, that's frequently overlooked, thinking that we're starting with, uh, you know, water at 212 degrees, you know, saturated water. And we're really not. You're going to rob a boiler BTUs just trying to heat water before we can even start the boil process. So that tends to that can be overlooked, and um, unless there's some sort of an economizer. But even still, if you're going from a cold iron situation, then then uh, uh, you know that that ends up being overlooked. Sometimes uh, the the loss of steam from uh, from Failed steam traps can create problems, and uh, you know uh, certainly the uh, the loss in piping, BTU loss in piping due to uh, radiation heat loss. Uh, those are just little things, but really erode the uh, overall capacity of the the boilerplate, or I mean the uh, name tag uh, uh, rating of the boiler compared to what your calculations are. And you're gonna have you're gonna have some loss heat loss in the pipe, even if you have you know very high quality insulation. There's always gonna be some loss, right? Yeah, there's no no such thing as 100 uh, percent efficiency in insulation. So yeah, you're still gonna have some heat loss. You're still gonna have some condensate created. Um, but another big thing that I have not mentioned yet is, uh, do you really know what equipment's gonna be online at the, at the time? You know, we we tend to think of you know the wort, the wort boiler, the mash cooker, you know whatever. 
uh, piece of brewing equipment, but you know, hot water generation. But uh, there's building heat and other things that may not be considered, or you're, you know, if you're going to add equipment that can can run at the same time, it's going to rob capacity from your boiler if that was not originally calculated. Talk about velocity through the steam distribution piping. What's optimal, and what happens when you get that wrong? For pressures below 50 psi, um, I like to design for 6,000 feet per minute uh, velocity. What that means is that you know you've got a little room for expansion um, at lower pressures. The uh, specific volume of steam is going to be much higher than at higher pressures. So you know you got to size the piping accordingly. If you if that does go wrong and uh, you have a lot more velocity, that means that you you're you've got a lot more pressure drop. So what that means is you're going to lose energy in the piping before it even gets to the process equipment. So I try to design for 6,000 feet per minute. Frequently, especially in brewing, sometimes there's additional equipment that gets added uh, that comes off of that particular delivery header. And um, when that happens, you know, you're losing capacity again. So you may have to generate more steam. If it's all undersized, you've got, you've got issues. If it's oversized, that doesn't hurt you. It just costs a little more. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Hopefully everyone knows that they need drip legs with traps to remove condensate from their steam lines, but it's not uncommon to see these sized incorrectly. Tell us what they should look like. Okay. Um, first of all, I disagree because a lot of folks don't know what drip legs really are and that they actually have a function. Um, they are a let's call it an engineered low spot, a gravitational low point in the delivery piping <clears throat> such that, you know, again, that inefficiency of uh, insulation or no insulation or wet insulation or whatever will create some uh, radiation heat loss, condensed steam, and that has to go someplace. And in this, the uh, steam system, the water's going to flow to a gravitational low point. And what that dri- that's known as a drip leg and uh, what the purpose of that is, is to, uh, you know, get that out of the system. So the manufacturers tend to recommend that that drip leg should be about two feet long and should be the same size as the piping. Um, if it's not the same size, if uh, it's above four inch, it would be about half the size of the piping. And then from the near the bottom of that, maybe six inches above the bottom of the leg, that would... Uh, uh, allow you the opportunity to install a steam trap that would remove that condensate. So, you know, again, the distribution piping is designed to provide high-quality dry steam to its uh, heat transfer equipment, you know, to its point of use. And if we don't do that, then we're not going to be delivering that on that promise. So it makes the system a lot less efficient. I bet you see a lot of those um, pipes that are not the same size as the as the steam pipe, right? I've seen a lot of them that where they they use a much smaller diameter pipe for that part. Yeah, and then what happens is you don't really attract the condensate. You get what they call the piccolo effect, which is going to be caused by you know, a little bit of accelerated velocity uh, in the liquid, even though it's not nearly as fast as the steam is traveling. It will still miss that little <laughs> half-inch or three-quarter inch uh, leg that's, uh, that's supposed to be draining it, and that doesn't that just doesn't work. You've obviously got a lot of experience with steam control valves. What advice do you have matching control valves to process? Well, um, in the steam system, I kind of 
default to uh, equal percentage vows, primarily because, um, and, and really the thought process goes beyond that, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, other liquids, let's say, when uh, you, you have a lot of, a lot of piping and uh, you've got a significant pressure drop in the piping, then when you plot the actual system loss, then uh, it tends to plot like a, like a quick opening valve curve. In other words, there's a, well, it's hard to explain without actually having the diagram in front of you. But talking about steam systems, with the uh, heat transfer formula, Q meaning BTUs equals UA delta T, U is the uh, heat transfer coefficient, but A is the surface area of the heat of the heat transfer equipment that you've designed or that someone has designed for you. And then, of course, delta T is the uh, temperature rise that you get from applying steam to the process. So when you don't have, you know, the, the equipment is going to be sized for that worst condition or the maximum um, heat rise. But in conditions where that doesn't exist, they can be seasonal, they could be process-related, whatever. But if you don't need uh, that much uh, temperature rise, then, in effect, the uh, heat transfer equipment is oversized. There's too much surface area because it, that's fixed. And what that does, in, in, from control, a control standpoint, means that that's uh, got a high gain. And so the reason why there is such a thing as an equal percentage uh, trim characteristic in control valves is to actually overcome that. You know, so it, it um, again, the, the plot would be the inverse of, uh, of uh, what the, the equal percentage control curve looks like. If you've ever seen those, uh, you know, in a valve catalog. Do you want to talk about sizing them, also sizing them to, op- to work between 20 and 80 percent? Yeah, that's uh, different valves are going to that that number is going to change depending on the uh, the type of valve that you're going to select. If it's like a butterfly valve or something like that, you're probably better off between maybe 25 and 60 percent or something like that. But globe valves, you know, which are fairly typical to use in uh, steam applications, uh, that gives you the uh, the best turn down, the best rangeability, uh, you know. In terms of being able to control at the uh, the lowest point and the highest point, I would not exceed those norms uh, to to uh, really have stable control. Coming up, if we take off the bottom of the piping, then you know that's where the the condensate is that hasn't made it to the drip leg. And, um, you know, that's where the scale might be in the internal piping. There's, uh, it's just bad practice to uh, take off the bottom of a steam header. You're not going to get high-quality steam to its point of use. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. 
Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Bring the world to your brew house with BSG's diverse selection of ingredients and services. Our dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Make BSG your supplier of choice with products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. Visit us at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. And thanks also to... Malt Europe Malting Company is a leading supplier of craft malt across North America. As a farmer-owned company, Malt Europe has carefully crafted quality malt from locally grown barley for decades. The result? A portfolio of base, specialty, and distiller's malts that exceed the exacting standards of craft brewers. Learn more and buy online at malteuropemaltingco.com. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Milwaukee meets at Wisconsin Brewing Company September 19th. The District Ontario Iron Brewer is at Common Good Beer Co. September 27th. District Western New York meets at FX Matt in Utica October 3rd. District New England meets at Northwoods Brewing October 11th. District Philly goes to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair October 12th. New Hampshire Brewfest 2019 is October 12th in Portsmouth. District St. Louis meets October 17th. And the brand new District Georgia is holding its first annual pig roast October 19th at Monday Night Brewing in Atlanta. District Mid-Atlantic meets October 19th at Union Craft Brewing in Baltimore. Registration is now open for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference in Calgary. Be sure to tack on a couple of extra days to enjoy some amazing hiking and make the 45-minute trip to Banff, which is one of the most picturesque places on the planet. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Back to the show. You've got a solid tip for air vents and vacuum breakers on on large cavity heat exchangers. What is that tip? And also give us the why behind it. Well, there's uh, actually there was a uh, uh, TQ article. I'd worked with a fellow named David Caprell for years. Uh, former brewmaster in uh, days gone by, but I think he's he's instructed a lot of uh, on brewing courses and brewing utilities. And he wrote an article which I uh, he used a lot of my information on about vent management and about uh, you know uh, breaking vacuum. The issues with um, steam systems that a lot of folks don't realize is that when you condense a pound of steam. Uh, Let's say that was at uh, that that ratio at uh, atmospheric pressure, that pound of steam at zero, when it turns into a pound of water at the same temperature, which is what happens when steam condenses, that volumetric change is uh, ratio is sixteen hundred to one. So if we don't replace that volume of steam with with the, an equivalent volume of steam, then the system will want to go into vacuum. It's going to seek a means to to. Uh, uh, fulfill that mission and, and going into vacuum, it's going to suck condensate out of uh, steam traps and things like that, drip legs, whatever. So there's a device called a vacuum breaker 
that is used to purposely suck air into the system. Now, we preach that, uh, well, you know, air is a bad thing in the steam system. You can't have air in the steam system. But when you're in, in, in those conditions, it sure beats having a vacuum, you know, that can cause damage, which, uh, again, will not allow condensate to drain out of uh, coils and things like that, you know, other, other heat transfer equipment. So by letting that go atmospheric, by breaking the vacuum, then, then we can get the gravity flow of condensate to its steam trap. And therefore, when we get, you know, a large influx of steam coming back, we don't have cold condensate that's there ready to create water hammer and things like that. So the, the opposite point of that is that on startup in large cavity heat exchangers, and by this we mean like work boilers and things like that, uh, you know, uh, same thing with uh, mash cookers and things like that. Uh, Anything with a large jacket, basically. Anything with a large jacket, yeah. And and uh, when uh, what happens is if we have a local uh, supplemental air vent, when the steam starts to come, you know, you can basically remove all that air that was sucked in by the vacuum breaker. You can take it out of the system before it's able to really do any harm. And so, you know, the hazard of not getting air out of the system is multiple. I mean, first of all, there's uh, Air is an insulator, so it really prevents the uh, the full heat transfer of uh, steam, uh, you know, to the uh, to the process because it's insulated, and um, then you end up with issues with um, CO2 and and oxygen being you know in the steam. If it's allowed to go into solution at lower temperatures, then it creates all kinds of of uh, corrosion issues. So that's why it's important to really understand what what happens when steam is condensed. We had Dave back on, I think it was episode 13, and, and talked about some of this stuff. I can't remember if I asked him this or not, but do, I'll ask you, does it matter where those uh, devices are located? For example, on a, you know, let's picture a, a big brew kettle with a large sidewall steam jacket. Does it matter if those air vents are at the top or the bottom of the jacket? Oh, they need to be at the top. For sure. And uh, really, the, the best advice is that... Uh, when steam is delivered to uh, whatever it is, a steam, uh, you know, a jacket or, you know, whatever, a shell of a heat exchanger, it doesn't matter. Um, it's going to push the air to the opposite side, you know, to a quiet zone, and uh, it will live there if it uh, if it isn't removed uh, with a supplemental device, because there's not a way for it to really get to to the condensate. So yeah, that's that's you always want to opposite of what the, where the steam supply is, and it has to be near the top. And frankly, um, if you're doing it in, in piping, and sometimes there's no provision for the ability to actually put an air vent on the, uh, on the plate itself or on the, uh, the coil itself, in which case then I recommend that you put it uh, at the, the condensate point uh, where, you know, condensate's going to run out of the heat exchanger, actually install a T there, and um, branch off and then go up again a couple feet to get an air accumulation area and then mount the device, if you can do that. That makes sense. Would you, would you run that up higher than the, the jacket itself, or does it just need to go up a little bit? No. It just needs to go up. So, well, they're, they're temperature-actuated devices, so if, it, if, it, if you don't have enough vertical rise in the little accumulator, then you have a chance of blowing a lot of condensate out of there because it's just seeing temperature. It doesn't care what it is. Got it. So. 
yeah, that's the that's the issue more than anything. Talk about selecting the right type of steam trap for a given application. Okay, uh, there's a lot of different steam traps out there from a lot of different manufacturers, but my uh, uh, and from a process standpoint, to me, it's always best to use a trap that uh, operates on a principle of understanding the the difference in density between steam and water. And so, really, the only two types that that I recommend are the uh, float and thermostatic type and the inverted bucket type. Even there, you've got issues. You know, they have, they have to be able to handle varying loads because it's going to be steam controlled. And um, they have to remove condensate as it forms. That's what the the density thing does for you, rather than rely on temperature changes or, you know, things like that 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 really are not all that related to the process. So, uh, one of those two choices is pretty good. But I will recommend probably ninety percent of the time that the float and thermostatic type steam trap is going to be it, it has better air removal capability. And granted, we didn't get rid of all the air. Not the entrained air or anything like that. Uh, at you know, by using a supplemental device, what we did was get rid of the air we sucked in with a vacuum breaker. So, um, you know, it's still important that the steam trap has to be able to handle non-condensable gases, and it does that very well as a as a its own separate device. Um, it modulates, but the biggest thing with a floating thermostatic trap is it will operate under very very low differentials. You can even size it for. Uh, Basically, one half psi, which means if it if we have zero uh, differential pressure at the trap, you know we can at least back up condensate about a foot, roughly, to to create a differential to be able to drain the device. I'm glad you brought that up. Let's because I want to get into that because uh, low differentials and also the overhead condensate returns can be problematic without having the right components like you're talking about. Talk, talk more about that. What are some other options for dealing with that situation? Well, if, uh, you know, as far as the low differential is concerned, um, you know, particularly if we're operating at less than full design load, you know, the, uh, again, we've got the, the oversized heat exchanger situation like we were talking about trying to control around that. But I mean, we're condensing steam right away because we've in effect, our heat transfer equipment is uh, you know, too size for uh, size too large for that condition. So that means we've got immediate condensation, and we're going down. You know, we're not we're modulating the uh, steam flow down such that you know we're near a vacuum condition or we're at very very low pressure. And if we've got a ten foot uh, overhead return or something like that, you can figure that. Uh, one psi is roughly two feet, you know. So I figure two for one. Um, we've created a, with a ten foot rise, you know, to the overhead return. We've created five psi of back pressure, and if we only have two psi in the front end, guess what? <laughs> we've got negative differential. So we're going to have to put some sort of a pumping device in there. And the manufacturers have combination devices where they'll use line pressure. They'll operate as a steam trap until they can't do that and then they'll uh, uh, introduce line pressure to it and that's that can be done in a single device or it can be done in a combination of a mechanical pump or a steam-powered pump and a, a steam trap on a closed loop system or it can be done on an open loop system where there's more than one one steam trap feeding it or we can just do it with an electric pump and a uh, 
in a vented receiver. But, you know, it's going to have to be pumped. You can't uh, can't beat Mother Nature on that one if, uh, if we're going to throttle down below what the what the back pressure that we're creating is by having an overhead return. All right, makes sense. All steam traps are going to fail eventually. Talk about best practices for inspecting traps. Well, there's uh, all the manufacturers have, have a means to uh, to test them, and our recommendations are that they be tested at least annually. And um, you know, you're going to uh, with a float and thermostatic trap. Chances are the failure point. Uh, you know, if the if the trap fails catastrophically, it's a ball float device, meaning it can't float. It's it's actually designed to fail close if the main if the uh, the ball float fails. However, they can fail open in such means that um, you know more often than not the failure point is going to be the thermostatic air vent that's inside the trap. So, um, you know that's a simple repair as opposed to replacing the whole steam trap. But you know you you have to test the two orifices basically, and you, and I like using a uh, you know we've got you know smart devices now that can that are programmable that it, that have an algorithm that show you know what type of steam trap it is and it tests itself. You know there's there's a lot of advances out there, but for brewers that want to just test steam traps, you know there's devices that are just ultrasonic uh, listening devices with headphones. Do that once a year and. Um, you know, just watch the performance of, uh, you know, of the equipment to see if, um, you know, if you're still making good beer or <laughs> uh, if there are issues. Obviously, you're going to know if it's failed closed. You're going to know right away. But if it fails open and you're using too much steam or you can't get the temperature or something like that, then then something's up. And uh, quite honestly, drip traps fit into that arrangement, too, because, again, the mission is to deliver high-quality steam to uh, to the point of use. So you got to test all of them, and uh, that's a good thing to do that annually. However, the bad thing is that's just a window in time. That's that's one day in time. So there may, if it's in a big plant, there could be X amount of steam traps that are going to going to fail the day before, and X amount the day after. And every day after, day and before, you know, your your plus or minus six month window at the max. So. Even that's got its flaws, unless you're going to do some sort of monitoring device, which, you know, a lot of companies with uh, are doing that with, uh, you know, wireless devices that actually can test steam traps and they're, you know, have software that uh, are at the operator's uh, fingertips. So that's pretty expensive and, uh, you know, maybe well worth it. I mean, it's justifiable, but um, I, I would think for for craft and regional brewers that, that that may not be an option, but you never know. If you can justify it, that makes sense. Okay. Steve, there's one, uh, there's another one that I sometimes still see even in newly constructed breweries. We talked about it back on episode 19, but remind listeners why steam pipe drops to equipment should never come off the bottom of steam headers. Well, again, the, uh, the mission of the distribution piping, which is what, what we're talking about, is that we want to deliver um, high-quality dry steam to its point of use, so we can, you know, and the purpose there is that we want to be able to condense the uh, the latent heat that resides in that steam and transfer it to the process. If we take off the bottom of the piping, then you know that's where the the condensate is that hasn't made it to the drip leg, 
and um, you know that's where the scale might be in the internal piping. There's uh, it's just bad practice to uh, take off the bottom of a steam header. You're not going to get high quality steam to its point of use. All right, Steve. Any final pearls of wisdom before we wrap up? Um, no, just to, just that. Um, just a warning to everyone that if you think this is just a bunch of piping and you know you can send your plumber out there to do this kind of stuff, well, plumbing is a noble profession. I mean, steam is a whole different animal, and you got to understand some of the dynamics that are involved in uh, in steam before you do any sizing, before you do any any piping. And uh, you, you really have to select the, the correct equipment. It's something that you should con- consult an expert on. And so uh, that would be my advice. And it uh, will end up being a whole lot cheaper in the long run. Cool. And I got a feeling I know a guy they could call if they need some help, right? <laughs> Absolutely. That was Steve Huffman here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you want to learn more from Steve, you can find him lecturing at the Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course, answering questions on Ask the Brewmasters over at community.mbaa.com, or read through his Boiler Safety and Brewing Applications article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. You'll find links to all of that in the show notes. We're taking this show on the road. I'll be talking yeast with Graham Stewart, dry hopping with Tom Shellhammer, kvike yeast with Richard Priest, oxygen ingress on small canning lines with Brooke Bell, diastaticus detection with Matt Linsky, and so much more. Master Brewers Live is a brand new addition to the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. So grab your passport, get registered at mbaa.com, and join us in the Master Brewers Live studio October 31st and November 1st in Calgary. Check out the brand new Master Brewers podcast website. You'll find guest profiles, information about upcoming live events, and more, all at masterbrewerspodcast.com. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, and Malt Europe. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.